Right. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, worship team. That was great. Um, all right. So we are in our seventh week now in our series on the Apostles' Creed. If you're new here, the Apostles' Creed is an ancient summary of some of the core beliefs of the Christian faith. And all this fall, we are taking the creed line by line, and we are asking ourselves, what does this mean, and why does it matter? What's the significance? So, we're going to begin as we do every week. If you are able and if you are willing, I invite you to stand right now as we confess these words that have been handed down to us uh, across the centuries. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. Great job. Just remember, our goal by the end of this series is to be able to say that from memory. So work on the memorization. Um, I, I plan to be able to do it as well. So the part of the creed that we're focusing on today, we're picking up right where we left off last week, is on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So you might say we're having a little bit of Easter in October this year which is, I think, a good time to have it, right? We're six months out from the last Easter, and we're six months until uh, this coming Easter. Uh, this is also, you know, the, the, the time of year when we're reminded of death as uh, the leaves fall and the cold and the dark descend. So I'd say we're due for a reminder of resurrection. Uh, over the past couple weeks, we have been talking about Jesus' death, right? Jesus was crucified, Jesus died, and then Jesus descended to the dead. But death could not hold Jesus down. On the third day, he rose again. Now, I talked about this a few weeks ago, but I think it bears repeating the early church fathers had a metaphor that they would use to describe how Jesus' death defeated death. And I love it. They encouraged us to think of death like a big monster that gobbles up every human being, right? Because every human being is under the curse of sin and death. That monster comes to, to eat every person. And because Jesus was fully human, the monster of death came for him and gobbled him up. But what the monster of death failed to realize was that when swallowing Jesus, it was not just swallowing a human being, but it was swallowing immortality, divinity, right? Because Jesus was not just fully human, he was fully God. And so when death swallowed Jesus, it got a stomach ache. Death 
could not digest Jesus, and so Jesus defeated death from the inside. When death came for Jesus, Jesus did not die. Death died. It's like, you know, the Trojan horse getting let in to the city walls, right? Jesus was that Trojan horse, and death let him inside the city walls. And because of that, death died. Beautiful metaphor. I love it. So Jesus did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose again. Now, that word again could be a little bit confusing, right? We're not saying that Jesus rose from the dead more than once. What we are saying there, rose again, is that he returned to life, right? He returned to embodied existence. That's important to emphasize, okay? When we confess that Jesus rose from the dead, uh, we're not talking about some sort of spiritual resurrection, a purely spiritual resurrection. You know, the way that some people might say, um, you know, my dead loved one lives on in my heart. Okay, there are some people out there who might try to spiritualize Jesus' resurrection to the point where it's nothing more than that, right? His principles, his ideals, they live on in us. And this is all just a metaphor. But that is certainly not what historical Orthodox Christianity has affirmed. What we affirm is that Jesus returned to embodied existence, physical existence. And the Gospels go to great lengths to to emphasize this, to make this very clear. So, for example, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, first thing that Jesus says when he, as risen, encounters the disciples for the first time, the first thing he says is, peace be with you, which when you think about it, that's really beautiful, right? But then immediately after that, he says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And then, just a little bit after that, he says, do you have anything here to eat? And we're told they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now, this seems like a very mild, kind of superfluous detail to include, right? That Jesus had a snack. But the point is that Jesus has truly returned to embodied existence, right? To chewing, tasting, digesting kind of existence. A true resurrection. Now, um, it's interesting that although Jesus returns to physical existence, it is important for us to recognize that this physical body that he lives in as a risen person is in some ways different from the old body, right? Because this is a body that is no longer under the curse of death. It is a human body, it is a physical body, but it's different. It's not under the curse of death. Um, For example, it's implied that his body can somehow go through a wall, right? Because the disciples are in a locked room and then all of a sudden Jesus is there. Uh, We're told that at one point, the travelers on the road to Emmaus see him disappear from right in front of him. He just disappears, right? These are not things that an ordinary uh, physical body does. So Jesus' physical body is in some ways the same as ours and in some ways different. 
And it's interesting because the Gospels tell us that people who knew Jesus, when they saw him in his resurrected forms, sometimes they didn't recognize him right away. Which is interesting. You know, I think that if the Gospel, gospel writers were making this up, that would be an odd thing to include in their propaganda, wouldn't it? We didn't recognize him right away, right? Because it sounds a little bit suspicious. It's like, well, why didn't you recognize him right away? Well, because that's the way it was, right? That's the only reason you would say that. They didn't recognize him right away, but then Jesus would do something, and then suddenly it would click, and they would go, oh, this is, this is him. Now, this is just a little bit of an aside, so I hope you'll indulge me here. Um, I think that the fact that people didn't recognize Jesus in his risen body right away might help to answer one of the questions that we sometimes have, which is, what age are we going to be in heaven? You know how people wonder that sometimes? What, what age are we going to be in heaven? If people couldn't recognize Jesus right away in his resurrected body, maybe that's because... In his resurrected body, he was somehow ageless. And what I mean by that is not that he was young, and not that he was old, but that he was neither young or old. That he was without age, because he was in a body that was no longer under the curse of sin and death. Just a theory, okay? But I just find it so fascinating. Why would they not recognize him right away? There's something about the resurrected body that's different from our bodies right now. Maybe in a way that's hard for our current brains to conceive. So if you find that helpful, great. If you don't, don't worry about it. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> we can say this confidently, right? Jesus rose to a real physical body, but that physical body was different from the physical bodies that we're all used to. It was a physical body no longer under the curse of death. So, how important is this part of the creed to our faith? On a scale from 1 to 10, how important is it? Well, this is what the, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, useless, pointless. You know, I think of futility and I think of you know, walking into a room and somebody saying, see that huge pile of dirt right there? Here's a thimble, move that pile of dirt from this side of the room to the other side of the room. You do it, the next day you return, you say, move that pile of dirt from that side of the room back to where you put it. Same thimble. <laughs> That's futility, right? Paul is saying, if Christ has not been raised, that is what our faith is like. It's pointless. It's useless. So on a scale from 1 to 10, how important is it? It's definitely a 10. Right? Without Christ's resurrection, Paul says, we are still in our sins. Well, why is that? Well, Christ is the one who pronounces forgiveness, right? If he didn't rise from the dead, 
that the one who pronounced forgiveness was defeated by death. So how can we have confidence that we're forgiven and reconciled to God? So if Christ has not been raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. In other words, we don't have any hope that those who have died have any chance of returning, right? Because death is supreme. Death conquered Christ. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, why is that? Well, it's because people like the Apostle Paul were really suffering for carrying this message that Jesus had risen. And if this life is all there is, and they're suffering for a lie, that's pitiful, right? Paul says a lot hinges on this idea that Jesus rose from the dead. We are wasting our time if he didn't actually rise from the dead. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, Christ lied. He said he would rise from the dead. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, the apostles were lying. And if Christ did not rise from the dead, then death is the real king, not Jesus. But we confess on the third day, he rose again. Death is not the real king. Death was defeated. And so the fear of death does not have to rule our lives. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, if it's true, that's great. But how can we be sure that this happened? How can we be sure that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, let me begin with a reminder. Something I said at the very beginning of this series. The word sure, the word certain. I don't know if we really should uh, be using those words too much. When we confess the creed, we are confessing belief, right? And that's different from saying, I can prove this 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt to all of you. When we confess belief, what we are confessing is, I am choosing to put my hope in these beliefs. I'm choosing to put my trust in this. Now, we might feel very confident and assured that what we are professing is the truth. We should feel confident and assured, right? But we're not saying, I can prove it. We're saying, I'm choosing to believe this. Certainty, 100% certainty, is not required in order to exercise faith. In fact, as beings that are not omniscient, we always need to exercise some faith because we don't know everything and we will never know everything, right? I do not know 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt that when I get in my car, the brakes are going to work. I, I can't know that, right? But I can still choose to exercise faith and get in my car and drive it, and I do it every day, right? Everything that we choose to do requires some faith because we are not omniscient beings, right? So using words like, oh, sure, and proof, and certainty, okay, let's, let's back off from that a little bit, right? There is, part of this is an element of choice. I choose to believe. However, at the same time, it is foolish to put our trust in things for no reason, right? Why would God give us minds and then expect us to do that, right? So there are good reasons to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you've 
been here on Easter at all, you've heard me talk about these. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you know, just a few examples. Like I mentioned earlier, if you were going to produce propaganda to argue that a man rose from the dead, the gospel accounts just aren't very good propaganda. What I like to say is that if you were making up a story, the gospel accounts of the resurrection are not the kind of story that you would make up, especially in the first century. For many reasons, but just one of them as an example, the first witnesses to the empty tomb are women. The first witness to the risen Jesus is a woman. And in those days, the testimony of woman, women was not considered valid in court, right? So that would be an odd thing to make up if you were making up a story. There's also the fact that in those days, there were other messianic movements, okay? Jesus wasn't the only person that people thought was the Messiah. But do we remember any of those other messianic movements that came either before or after Jesus? No, we don't, we don't remember them because ordinarily what happened is when that, that leader died, everyone went, well, guess he wasn't the Messiah. And yet, the Jesus movement after Jesus' crucifixion ends up thriving and growing, and here we all are here today still talking about him, right? Something was different about the Jesus movement. How do we explain that without something like the resurrection? And then, of course, <clears throat> there's, there's the, the fact that these, these apostles that proclaimed that Jesus was risen, they resolutely stuck to proclaiming that, even though it cost them so much. Uh, church tradition says that most of the apostles ended up being martyred for sticking with this idea and proclaiming it that Jesus rose from the dead. So they must have really believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, right? And I don't understand why they would believe that unless they had had some profound experience of the risen Jesus. Now I could go into a lot more detail about these kinds of arguments that's just scratching the surface, but I don't really want to because although that's all valuable, when you really get down to the foundation, I don't think these kinds of arguments are why people come to believe that Jesus is risen. There's value in talking about them, but they are not the primary reasons. Those, these kinds of arguments can buttress faith, but they can't create faith. The real reason people believe that Jesus is risen is because they feel like they've met him in some way, right? They've heard about Jesus, about what he said and did, and they, they feel like they have encountered the holy. There's a moment in the Gospel of Matthew that I think is very relevant to what, what I'm talking about here. Uh, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you guys think that I am? Or, sorry, he begins by asking, what are other people saying about me? And the disciples say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, people are saying that you are someone in the tradition of the prophets of old, right? And then Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And we're told, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Okay, so Peter says to Jesus, you are the son of the living God. In other words, you are God's only son, like we say in the creed. And notice Jesus' response. Right? He doesn't say, oh, Peter, you're a clever one. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you for memorizing all of scripture and putting all the jigsaw pieces together just right so you figure out the puzzle and realize that I am the son of the living God. I'm so Congratulations using that big, beautiful brain of yours, Peter. Right? He doesn't say that. He says, this has been revealed to you by God. In other words, recognizing Jesus as Lord, Jesus as the incarnate God, it is not something that we rationally deduce through this dispassionate and objective analysis of the data. Right? It is something that is revealed to us. It is revealed, not reasoned. Now, what does that mean, that it's revealed? Because the danger of thinking this way is to think something like, well, just, you know, God just kind of decides to zap some people and he just ignores other people and he says, okay, I'm going to let you figure it out. I won't let you figure it out just because I feel like it, right? That, I don't think that's the right way of thinking about that. Here's a way of thinking about it. When you look out at a mountain vista or a sunset or at the peak foliage, you know, a hill with peak foliage, fall foliage, you have a revelation, right? And that revelation is, that's beautiful, right? Or most of us have a revelation like that, right? You don't figure out that it's beautiful through this clinical assessment. Hmm, let's figure that out. Let me examine all the data, right? You just experience it, and then you know it. You know it in your bones. This is beautiful. And what I hear Jesus saying is that coming to recognize who he truly is works a lot like that. Okay? We experience Christ. We, we hear about what he said and did. We feel his presence with us. And then we know that he is Lord. We know it in our guts. Okay? It's revealed, not reasoned. And this is the most fair and beautiful way for God to do things, right? Because how fair is it for the truth to only be accessible to those who have all the right facts and a big enough brain to figure it all out, right? Now, God is always working to bring this revelation to human beings that Jesus is Lord. But there are things that can prevent us from receiving that revelation and experiencing it. Just as if you have a day when you're in a really bad mood, you might not be able to recognize the beauty of the mountain vista, right? Because you're too, you're too preoccupied. And for example, if we are focused on things like money and power and pride, we miss the revelation. 
God is always working to bring that revelation. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And when we've experienced that revelation, we just feel in our bones that we know that Jesus is risen. And there may be times where we experience doubt, but there is just something about Jesus that we cannot shake. And that is the foundation of real faith. Okay, part of the reason that this revelation comes to us is because of what the next part of the creed says. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The reason so many people are able to realize that Jesus is risen, people who have never seen Jesus face to face, people who live thousands of years after Jesus' earthly ministry, the reason for that is because Jesus ascended. Uh, one way of summarizing this is, we realize he is risen because he is ascended. Now what does that mean, ascended? When we hear that word ascend, we tend to think of it very literally, like we imagine Jesus floating up into the sky, right? But when you hear that word ascended, you want to recognize it has the connotation of coming to power, right? Like when we say that a king ascended to his throne. When we confess that Jesus ascended, we are, we are confessing that he came to power. He ascended to the heavenly throne. After Jesus rose from the dead, he did not die again. He did not descend. He ascended. He came to power. That's what we mean also in the second, second line there. Um, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, the position right to the right of the throne was the position of power and authority. Just like today, we might say, oh, so-and-so is the leader's right-hand man. Right? The position of power and authority. So Jesus has ascended to the heavenly throne. He is reigning today with the Father. He sits in this place of highest authority. And because he has ascended, he is able to reveal himself to people in a way that he would not be able to if he was just walking around on earth. Right? When Jesus was in his risen body walking around on earth, he could only be present to those who he was within eyeshot of. Right? But once Jesus is ascended to the heavenly throne, he is able to send his spirit to be present to people everywhere at once. Right? And so that's why so many people just know it in their bones that Jesus is risen. Because Jesus is ascended, he is reigning, and he sends his spirit, his presence to us so that we can know in our bones he's risen. <clears throat> now, the point of the ascension is not only that Jesus has this power to reveal himself to us, when we confess that Jesus has ascended, we're also saying that Jesus is the one who is truly in charge. You know, just as the early church was always under this pressure to confess, Caesar is Lord, they rather confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is 
the ascended one, right? The true, the true leader, the true king. Now, I want us to be careful. I don't want us to misunderstand what that means to confess Jesus as the real king. Because if we're not careful, we might take that to mean that every single thing that happens in the world right now is ordered by Jesus, right? Jesus is calling every shot, right? Jesus is the one who said, Putin, go into Ukraine. No, no, no. Okay. That's not what that means. Clearly, the leaders of this world often do things that Jesus is not in favor of, right? We can be confident of that. This is the perspective that we should have. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15.23. He, meaning Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is a very interesting verse, what, what this is describing, right? It's saying, right now, Jesus is the true king. He is the one who is truly in charge. He's reigning. And he will reign until all his enemies are under his feet, which means his enemies still exist. There are still rebels in the kingdom that are causing trouble. But Jesus will reign until those rebels are under his feet, meaning until they are brought into submission to him. He's reigning now. He's ascended. But right now, there's still what you might call a gap between how things actually are and how things are supposed to be. But one day, that will not be true anymore. The Bible tells us that one day, God will be all in all. Which means one day, there will no longer be that gap between how things are and how things are supposed to be. Things will actually be as they are supposed to be. So, when we say that Jesus has ascended, what we are saying is that Jesus is in charge, and everyone who opposes him will eventually fall. Everyone who opposes him will eventually fall. <clears throat> now, um, as we say that, uh, I want to give a warning. And excuse me one moment here. <clears throat> this is a very important warning. So I want to get it right here. Okay. If we're not careful, when we hear those words, everyone who opposes Jesus will eventually fall. They can be used by our flesh to justify bad behavior. And by your flesh, I mean the part of you that has sinful desires. Okay? Our flesh has a way of twisting the word of God. And this is the kind of line that our flesh loves to twist. Because we can hear it, if we're not careful, and we think something like, yeah, everyone who opposes Jesus will eventually fall. Yes, that's right. My God is going to beat everybody else. All those heathens and secularists and atheists, they're going to get it. 
They're going to get what's coming to them. I can't wait. Like to, they're going to fall, and I, I'm going to try to tip them over a little bit now, right? And when we have that kind of attitude, the irony is that we start turning into the enemies of Jesus, right? Because recognizing Jesus as Lord doesn't mean just thinking Jesus is Lord. It means confessing that the way of Jesus is the truth. That the way of Jesus is the life. And what, what, what do we see when we look at Jesus' teaching and his example? Right? What do we see? We see him saying things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute him, per, per, persecute you, right? We, we hear him saying, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. We hear him saying, those who live by the sword will die by the sword, so put away your sword. Right? And we, we see him on the cross praying, Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Right? To confess that Jesus is ascended is to say the way of Jesus is the way that will truly prevail. In the end, that is the way that will be victorious. And that is the way. Je Jesus' way is the way of self-sacrificial love and mercy and forgiveness and generosity. Right? And so as we, if we start to embrace this attitude of, oh, yeah, all Jesus' enemies are going to fall and I can't wait for it, right? What happens to us is we start to turn into the enemies, right? And we become the ones who will fall. As the church, we are supposed to be the people who don't just use the word Jesus and say, oh, Jesus is ascended, he is king, right? But we trust that the way of Jesus is the truly right way, the way that will prevail, the way that will win in the end. If we follow the way of Jesus right now, it may seem like foolishness, right? It looks like foolishness when Jesus is being crucified, right? How can this be the guy who's going to win in the end, right? But, but we know that the way of crucifixion doesn't end with crucifixion. It doesn't end with death, but it ends with resurrection, right? We believe Jesus is risen. Jesus is ascended. Jesus defeated death. And Jesus reigns. And his way is the way to life. The meek will inherit the earth. The peacemakers are the ones who are truly blessed. Let's pray. Lord, if it's hard for us today to believe that death will not have the final word, if it's hard for us to believe that Jesus, you are truly reigning in heaven right now, uh, Lord, fill us with faith. Lord, help us to experience the revelation that you are risen, that you are at work in the world, and that you will reign until all enemies are brought under your feet. Lord, we look forward to that day when there will no longer be the gap between how things are and how they are meant to be. 
And Lord, may we as your church live as citizens of your kingdom now because we know that you are reigning. Help us to live not according to the ways of the kingdoms of this world, but according to the ways of your kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.